Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode 82, Paradiso, canto quindicesimo, the seventh day, sometimes after midnight. In the last episode we moved into the sphere of Mars and in this episode we see the first soul. It's one of Dante's ancestors, Caccia Guida, who took part to the Second Crusade. His role here, however, is not just as a soldier. Of course, as a Florentine, he has a lot to lament about present-day Florence. That is, present at the time of the poem, but I don't think he'd look too kindly on the current state of Italian politics either. But first, we get a bit of proto-apologetics. Dante notices how eager they are to let him speak before he even tries, and reflects on how they can't be deaf to the prayers of the living. He concludes that those who prefer ephemeral goods to the goods of the kingdom rightly read what they sowed. And it's ironic to look back on this after the Reformation and sort of read between the lines that people may have not been asking for the prayers of the saints as much as we imagine that Catholic Middle Ages to have looked like. Then again, lay medieval lay piety was one of my specialist subjects back in my university days, so I am well aware that nothing is as black and white as it appears to any one person's mind. But this is what I find amusing about it, because a lot of historiography of the Reformation misses these nuances. Anyway, one of the souls will appear to act like a falling star in a clear sky, and Dante compares it with Anchise in Aid. The only real parallel here is that they both speak Latin, but I guess in a way an ancestor is a father, albeit a distant one. It is indeed Cacciaguida, whom I have already introduced at the beginning of the episode. Before we have any serious conversation with him, though, we get Dante talking about Beatrice's spirit and eyes glowing even more than before and reaching yet unsurpassed levels of beauty, as you'd expect. I guess he is setting the scene for the ending when he'll get to the presence of God and realise that beauty itself surpassed Beatrice, no matter how much he loved her. I might, of course, be wrong, but I can't imagine it just put so much flattering for a dead woman. In a day and age, a single man of 35 would not make us bat an eyelid twice, but even with many people living lives without lifespan, 35 years old then was on average being middle-aged. He was settled with a wife since 1285, and at the time of writing his eldest sons would have been at least 15 since they were both born around the turn of the century. He did not have to write an exaggerated love of another woman to fend off unwanted advances. If he keeps going back to this point of the beauty of Beatrice 2.0, there is a deeper meaning to it than his inability to move on, which would have been understandable since his marriage with Gemma Donati was a political manoeuvre that was arranged when he was 12, even though they'd been engaged until he was 20 before they actually married. And Boccaccio claims it was an unhappy marriage because he never wrote a poem to her. I can see the rationale, but it's quite accepted in the scholarship that this poetry was not in fact addressed to women, but to allegories. So that would explain why the mother of four children was not a subject. But of course we're not in his mind, so this is all speculation. Back to Cacciaguida. 
He praises God for the favor he extended to Dante, and then he will speak of how Dante appears to be rejoicing in being there more than the souls who are home there permanently. And then he talks about how it's true that the souls read the thoughts of God and therefore know what he is thinking before he even thinks it. Still, he invites him to speak so that his charity can increase out of his desire to comply with his request. And so Dante sort of obliges him. I'm in the thick of a migrant hangover, so forgive me for reading in its entirety a paraphrase found in a very old commentary by Tozer, to which I referred to my, myself to make sure I really understood what I was reading. Dante here excuses himself for being unable to thank Cacciaguida, as he would wish to do for his benevolence. The ground of his excuse is that, whereas in heaven a feeling is accompanied by an equivalent power of thought, through which the feeling can find expression, this is not the case with mortal men, for in them the means of expressing feeling falls short of the wish to do so. I am none the wiser to what he actually meant to say, so I'm going to stick with Hollander for the first time in a while. And I'm still none the wiser, although now I have learned that the bit about birds is a play on words on their surname, Alighieri, and then that the canto, the interpretative key, is the sense of the centrality of both uniqueness and of likeness in the aesthetics of Christianity and consequently of the poem. I quote, This is nowhere more readily apparent than in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, a uniquely human being, because he is also the immortal God, and yet a commonly human being, because he was also mortal. And it is perhaps fair to suggest this seem as nowhere before in the poem being quite so evident or so important as it has become in this canto. Anyway, I feel like his commentary often digresses more than my own train of thoughts, which is impressive. Cacciaguida tells Dante he is an ancestor of his, and that his son Alighiero I, who was Dante's great-grandfather, has been in the first terrace of purgatory for a hundred years, so please Dante pray for him. I find it fascinating how the summary of the theme then says that Cacciaguida evokes the ancient Florence, since we are talking about a mere five generations between him and Dante, and by how the summary I mean the summary on the Italian website where I take uh, the text in the original. Anyway, this ancestor, Cacciaguida, lived between 1098 and 1148, when he died in the Holy Land during the Second Crusade, which happened between 1147 and 1150. He had been knighted by Emperor Coran III, and I can sort of see how he must have appeared to Dante, perhaps thanks to his own family's geography. Still, while 12th century Florence was a bit of a golden age in Dante's eyes, you'd think that calling it ancient, we'd be talking about the times of the Etruscans. At the end of the day, Dante himself just uses the language of every elderly relative you have, in my days, and in the only reference to ancient things is the fact that back then it was still a city small enough to fit within its ancient walls. Honestly, what is wrong with whoever wrote that website? Speaking of ancient walls, what Cacciaguida was thinking was not Etruscan Fiesole. The first wall, which stood for a millennium, was the Roman wall. 
Following that, an expansion of the wall happened uh, about 200 years before his time, in the 9th century. The next expansion won't have been for another few decades after his death, so he must have meant either of these choose. Of course, for me, 1870 AD was not exactly antiquity in the 1100s, but then perhaps it's my own bias at play. My grandparents were born in the 1920s, and so their family memories went back all the way to the middle of the 19th century easily. Even if we're in 2020, for me, the time after Waterloo feels relatively contemporary, because it came to me mediated by generational memories. The time before Waterloo, instead. That's what I get from books printed with funny characters, and so it feels more remote. Anyway, to make matters more complicated still, the, 1870, the, the 870 AD wall were almost entirely on the site of the Roman one, after the city had become smaller in the 500s. Part of the old wall walked alongside Via del Proconsolo, where the Church of Badia, which was and still is a monastery church, is situated. This, you may remember from the very beginning of the podcast, was Dante's next of the woods. It's said he first saw the teaching in this very church. Anyway, his portrayal of Florence could have been further from the glamour of Dante's time. The city was sober and modest. The women of Florence were modestly attired, both in terms of not flaunting the riches of nature and the riches of husbands and fathers paying for their jewellery and fine fabrics. They married later and without extortionate dowries, so that fathers were not terrified to discover that a daughter was born to the house, like it was in Dante's times, when the dowries were excessive and demanded earlier, making it more inconvenient to put them together. There was no places em- palaces empty, sorry, and in disuse, and Sardanapolo had not yet shown everyone how far you could go behind the closed doors of your chambers. Now, this comment is quite amusing, since it's a reference to someone who lived before Christ and had become, in the Middle Ages, the symbol of decadence and debauchery. It was Arzubanipal, the king of the Assyrian. Chances are, between his death in 1631 BC and Dante's times, plenty had been going on, more or less privately, including in Cachaguida's Golden Age. A whole alternative history of Europe could be written just through your royal mistresses and occasionally male lovers. But of course, we can't really let facts get in the way of a good narrative, and Dante needed to paint the earlier age as a righteous time, even though never in the history of humanity have we not shown the depths of the depravity of sin. No criticism is very strong if you go, oh well, I guess that's just how bad we are, we can't really do anything about it. The power of his criticism was to hold the earlier age as a standard to be met. As it was the case from, for Rome, it was to be the case for Florence. The great city will fall into decay. And in fact, it's well along in the process. Women were sure to die in their fatherland and not be cheated on by husbands off from business in France when Cacciaguida was alive. And so on. The whole discourse is just a lot of examples of how his times was better than the decadence of the present. The idealized view of happy domesticity was reflected in the citywide harmony that was likely the real goal for Dante in this passage. 
Florence was not just contrasted with herself here, but we are told that the stories of the ancient heroes were shared, even in the context of the strong Christian religiosity of the people, and especially Dante's ancestors. Born in a pious household, Cacciaguida will become a knight that impressed his king with his righteous deeds, and he followed him in the ultimate righteous deed of the time, a crusade. Of course, if the popes had taken care of the Holy Land, the Muslim wouldn't have been able to take over. Dante here is oversimplifying the geopolitical situation in the Middle East of the 12th century, of course, but it's nice to see a criticism of a pope other than his contemporaries. The canto ends with Cacciaguida telling us that he died a martyr's death in the battlefield. Ever since the First Crusade, recruiting preachers had been stressing the idea that dying in a religious conflict like that was a form of martyrdom, so it doesn't necessarily tell us that Dante believed his ancestor to have died a traditional martyr's death, rather than being implicitly a witness to the faith by fighting on the Christian side. We don't know whether he was given the option to recant and didn't and died, which is what we would mean by martyrdom. Either way, a martyr's death is a direct ticket to heaven without a long layover at an airport's lounge. So it served Dante well to stick to this widely accepted view and bring his ancestor into the arena. I don't know whether to be back in the next canto or not, but I'll be moving to it now, as doing three recordings in one day is a big job, and I'm keen to get through it as quickly as possible, while ensuring I am still posting something worth your precious time. Ciao! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for 10 or adds if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.